0: So thank you all for coming to our webinar. Uh, today It's going to be on cesspools, water quality's worst enemy. Um, if you didn't know, it is the number one polluter here on the island. We have four speakers today, so I'll be giving short presentations. So we're going to ask that you save your questions till the end or put them in the chat. Um, our first speaker. It's actually not in the order pictured here, but our first speaker will be Stuart Coleman, our um, previous Hawaii Regional Manager, and now the um, Executive Director of Vi Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations. And then we'll have Colleen Hinn, Surfrider Foundation's um, Clean Water Coordinator. So we're always excited to have someone from National joining our webinars. And then we'll have Dan Amato, our Blue Water Task Force Coordinator for Oahu. And finally, Yoko Schneider, um, our project coordinator, and 2020 RAW Fellow at uh, Vi. So without further ado, we will start the first presentation with Stu. All
1: right. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good to see you all. Um, this is one of my favorite pictures um, that I like to show. This is in Waimanalo, and it just reminds people that a cesspool is like having a toilet on the beach. Um, so that was a fun photo shoot that we did uh, over there. And just to kind of go over the problem, most of you know, but we have um, more than 90,000 cesspools um, in Hawaii. They're unofficially could be as much as 100,000 or more. Um, And they release about 53 million gallons a day into our groundwater. Um, To put that into comparison, the worst sewage spill Hawaii's ever had was in 2006, and that was 48 million gallons that were spilled and that closed all of Waikiki and uh, shut down our beaches and made international headlines. Um, So kind of after that, we, Surfrider really got active with water quality issues and we helped pass um, one act 125, which mandates that all cesspools are converted by 2050. Um, Now currently we're converting about 150 a year and to do that number, we're going to have to do, in 30 years, 3,000 a year. So we're going to, that's going to multiply by about 20 times. So, um, and with sea level rise and big storm events like we had in Honolulu two years ago, this is going to become an even more pressing issue here. So as you guys know, the, you know uh, a cesspool is basically just a hole in the ground. Um, it usually is kind of lined on the side with bricks and the septage can kind of go through there, um, but it's not really treated. And so it can go into our groundwater, and this you know poses direct environmental and health threats um, and, and can get into the groundwater, and in some areas even um, affects our drinking water. So that's something we have to be super careful about. And so some of those health risks, you know the pathogens. Um, can increase the risk of gastroenteritis, I've had that, hepatitis A, haven't had that, Uh, conjunctivitis, salmonella, um, salmonellosis, say that three times fast, and cholera. Um, One thing you might not know is that Hawaii has four times the rate of staph infections um, than the national average, and two times the rate of MRSA infections. And so, you know, there are also kind of heavy metals and nutrients that are associated that can have public risk, health risk. Environmentally, the main thing we're concerned with with is nutrient pollution. Um, And the the top nutrient is nitrogen. That can create algal blooms. And Dan will talk a lot more about that in more depth. Um, But it also can lead to eutrophication and um, lack of oxygen in these nearshore environments. Um, which can lead to decreased fish populations. Um, And then also, you know, with that just basic sewage pollution, it can lead to reduced coral cover, um, which is, you know, so valuable to our islands. So this is an interesting picture because right in front of you, um, that is a cesspool in front of the house. And with erosion, beach erosion, this has now been completely exposed. So that's raw sewage that would be flowing right onto the beach. This is not uncommon in you know, a lot of areas with very, very heavy erosion and beachfront homes. Um, so our vision is to kind of help the state and the counties and homeowners in Hawaii manage the process of upgrading these cesspools you know, because of our mandate um, and replace them with more affordable, efficient, um and 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 just better uh systems that are for the environment so we have five pillars of why um and that stands for wastewater alternatives and innovations of course and innovative technology financial resources policy and advocacy outreach and education and pilot projects i'm going to focus today on policy and advocacy Um, this is uh, Rafiki, um, for those of you who know him, our former Oahu um, coordinator. And um, he, this was at the bill signing we ha- when we passed the bill um, with Governor Ige, um, mandating the conversion of all cesspools by 2050. So really a great day um, when we helped pass that. And here's a timeline, kind of the legislation that we did um, in 2016, we helped pass Act 120, which banned the construction of new cesspools. We were only late by about three decades after the last state did that, um, I think, which was Rhode Island. And um, also offered homeowners a $10,000 tax break to uh, upgrade their systems. Then in the next year, we passed Act 125, which I talked about, and that mandated the upgrade of all cesspools by 2050 and required doH UH to complete a priority upgrade Areas report, which we're in the process of now. And then finally, Act 132 created the Cesspool Conversion Working Group, um, and I serve on that um, and kind of represent um, from Surfrider, but now by but you know, all kind of environmental organizations that are dealing with these issues. And then just so you get a sense of the priority areas. As part of DOH's report, um, they established priority one, two, three, and four. Four is still an unknown. They put a big category in there for just ones they weren't sure. Priority one um, is that uh, sewage waste from cesspool poses a threat to drinking water um, in nearby surface waters. And um, priority two is a suspected threat and priority three is the potential threat. Um, and so, all across the state, we have these. Um, and the two priority one areas are upcountry Maui and then Kahalu on Oahu. Um, and you can see uh, Maui has kind of the most, but half of the Big Island, um, half of all the cesspools are on the Big Island. So, that's our kind of most problematic um, area. And that is all for now. I will defer to my co presenters who have interesting material to share, and then we can do questions at the end. Thank you.
2: All right. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? Awesome. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Colleen Hen. Can you actually go to the next slide, please? So, um, we're here to talk about Blue Water Task Force. Um, I am the clean water coordinator for Surfrider Foundation. I help coordinate our Blue Water Task Force program. And I like to share this photo of myself as a water quality intern in Eastern Long Island. um, I was collecting a sample during a heavy rain. After receiving the results of said sample, I made the decision to forever wear boots thereafter. And this pond, this picture, is really where my water quality journey began because you'd be surprised what our water quality really can be in some of the most seemingly pristine areas in the United States. So my job with Surfrider is to help carry out uh, the Clean Water Initiative, which is, um, it strives to protect, protect water quality and reduce pollution so that it's safe for everybody to surf, swim, play, splash around, do whatever you love to do in the water. To meet this goal, Surf chapters build awareness of local pollution problems, and activists advocate for solutions in the community level to really protect our precious water resources. You can go to the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately, there are many sources of pollution that impact our coastal waterways, stormwater and urban runoff being one of the worst. Um, Stormwater urban runoff is the number one source of beach closures and advisories in the United States. Basically, when rain, snowmelt, or even excess irrigation hits impermeable surfaces, all of that water runs downstream and and picks up pollutants on its way, um, running into our surrounding waterways. And unfortunately, as Stu is just shedding light on, sewage reaches our coastal waterways way more frequently than we would like to admit. Um, The type of wastewater system you have is obviously dependent on where you live, but sewage can reach the ocean through sewage spills, leaks, and misconnects. This is happening a lot over the country, across the country, um, especially in areas where the infrastructure is a little bit older. Um, Sewage can reach the ocean through ocean outfalls, combined sewage overflows, and of course, septic systems and cesspools, which we are talking about today, they do not serve us as well as we would love. in localized areas, pets and wildlife can impact water quality conditions as well as agriculture. It's a really prominent issue in Hawaii. Crops are sprayed with pesticides and chemicals, and animal ag can cause fecal pollution to local waterways. And of course, there are the easy to point to point discharges those are the factories, power plants, desal plants that impact water quality as well. Um, thank you. Um, so, this is a problem because sorry, the font got all wonky, but that is that <laughs> uh, this is a problem because pollution puts public health at risk at the beach. Over twenty thousand beach closures and swim advisories are issued every single year in the United States to protect against illness from recreating in those polluted waterways. Stuart was just speaking about this, but I think it's really important to get the important to get this point across. You can suffer from gastrointestinal illness, you can get an eye ear sinus infections, you can get skin rashes, you can get much, much, much more severe infections. So if you ever see a sign like this on the beach, please stay out of the water. It is truly not worth it. Next side piece. Thank you. So this is where Rider's Blue Water Task Force comes in. Sorry about the font. <laughs> um, Blue Water Task Force is our national community-based science program in which surf rider chapters empower everyday people just like you and I to go out and test our local waterways for pollution. We test for enterococcus. It's a bacteria that indicates fecal pollution. Um, It is abundant in the gut of warm-blooded animals, so it can come from multiple animal sources. Um, these programs are set up across the country to essentially augment the data that 's provided by our local health agencies so while your local health department might sample bathing beaches, which is basically anywhere that 's lifeguarded, our blue water task force really really seeks out to supplement that information so you might have a beach that isn't necessarily lifeguarded but you know it 's a popular dive spot or a popular place where people you know take their kids when they 're teaching them how to swim or you know, paddleboarding, anything, we would go out and sample those beaches because we know they're important for recreation. Also, at the end of, you know, a lot of areas across the country, especially in seasonal communities, many health departments kind of pack up their things for the colder months and stop sampling. Well, we try to fill in those gaps. So a lot of our sampling programs year round. So pre-COVID, we had 50 Blue Water Task Force labs sampling over 480 beaches and collecting over 7,500 samples every single year. This is a really, really diverse database of water quality across the country. And you might be wondering, what do we do with this data? Next slide, thank you. Um, so we make this data readily, readily available to the public on our national website and chapters are responsible for communicating their findings to their local communities through social media, water quality, email alerts like you can see above. And this data is really used to buy for change in local communities where those problems exist. You can go next. And I just wanted to include this in here as well. You can reach all of our Blue Water Task Force data at go.surfrider.go We're gonna try that again. Go.surfrider.org BWTF. You can access all of our historical information on this website so while we're talking about using our blue water task force data for positive change i just wanted to give an example about my experience working in eastern long island um, Suffolk county is similar to hawaii in that or long island in general is similar, similar to hawaii in that we have the highest density of on-site sewage disposal systems in the country which you can imagine wreaks havoc on marine ecosystems so, this can be a huge threat to public health and can also lead to excess nutrients uh, being input into the waterways. So you can see this map on the left. This is actually what like a typical sampling day looks like in some of our closed bodies of water. We see a lot a lot of high bacteria because we are so impacted by these on site wastewater systems that unfortunately don 't really function. Um, this can cause harmful algal blooms in our communities. We are finding new species of cyanotoxins every single year, and it can, it can lead to restricted recreation, restricting, restric, restricted fishing in certain areas, and can unfortunately impact human health. And some pets have unfortunately passed away from chewing a stick found in one of these ponds. So these are serious, serious risks and serious costs we are paying for our wastewater systems. Next. So since our livelihoods on Long Island are so dependent on our surrounding waterways for you know, food, lifestyle, tourism, all of that, there was so much pressure to, on our local electeds to find a solution. So Surfrider Eastern Long Island worked alongside a lot of other local groups to help push for these solutions presented here um, that would improve, help improve the problem that we have with leaking septics and cesspools. So these are just two solutions that happen in Suffolk, and I just hope they um, encourage you all that solutions are possible and readily tangible. So um, in local municipalities in Long Island, we have this thing called a Community Preservation Fund. It has It comes from a 2% tax on all real estate transfers. This fund has historically been used to purchase open space, but in November 2016, we we voted to extend those funds to water quality remediation efforts. And we've been using our Blue Water Task Force data ever since to help prioritize some of those problem areas. And then the second one is huge. Um, We passed a countywide mandate to require any new construction to put in an innovative alternative septic system that reduces some of the nutrient issues we we are experiencing um, as a result of our failing septics and cesspools. And on top of that, all failing cesspools are no longer allowed to be replaced with new cesspools, which 2020 obviously is common sense, but it is still a huge win to have that on paper and on law. Um, As a result, this has caused a massive increase in innovative septic systems and some of which are actually being tested in Hawaii, which is really Um, Yeah, and I just wanted to mention this because obviously solutions come in all different shapes and sizes But this is an optimistic case study We know it will improve and already has improved our water quality on Long Island over the next few years or it already has but we hope it will even increase over the next few years so that is pretty much it. Uh, you can click next. If anyone wants to, wants to reach out, learn more about Blue Water Task Force, obviously you have a amazing army of people on the ground there, but
3: I'm always here if anybody has any questions. Thank you. All right. Uh, my name is uh, Daniel Amato.
4: I'm coordinator for the Oahu chapter here in Hawaii. And today, I'll touch a little bit more on the um, interconnectivity of the land and the ocean, what that means for uh, reef health. Just to start with, my take home message is really that the land is intimately connected with the ocean. And I, I think that a lot of people believe there there's this, this you know impenetrable boundary between the beach and the ocean, and that the ocean water stays in the ocean, and the groundwater stays in the ground, but that's really not the case in most places in Hawaii. Uh, if not everywhere, there's this recirculation, and it's very tidal. And um, so, what you do on the land, and, and how you impact that groundwater—that is, it is uh, the coastal groundwater—is can really impact reef health. And you know, unfortunately, we treat these islands like uh, big toilets. We put our wastewater right into the ground, as we've been talking about. There's um, uh, you know, potentially over 100,000 cesspools in the state. There's injection wells that are basically large cesspools. And um, interestingly enough, these islands function like large toilets and it's very tidal. You're hitting the, the flush button, the flapper comes up, and that sea level, um, as, the, as the sea level goes down, that pressure is released and the toilet bowl flush into the nearshore environment and most of that water is coming out right at the beach face in the first you know few feet of water is where most of this uh, groundwater is spilling out and when the tide comes back up it forces you know very clean ocean water back into the island and then the bowl fills and the cycle repeats itself. And as we've been talking about today there's you know over 88,000 cesspools that we know of Uh, There's over 110,000 on-site sewage disposal systems of various types in the state, but this is just what we know of from tax records and and other databases. Uh, There's also greater than 100 private injection wells and many large municipal injection facilities that do, you know, four and a half, five million gallons a day in some places into the ground. So something that people might not be very aware of is, is, as I said, this kind of groundwater pathway for pollutant transport into the ocean. It's something I've been studying quite a bit um, at the University of Hawaii over the last 10 years and doing a lot of research on. But uh, SGD, or Submarine Groundwater Discharge, is essentially groundwater that is uh, forced into the ocean. And again, this happens mostly at low tide. And this is an issue because... Uh, groundwater while naturally high in nitrogen compared to the ocean when you when you add any sort of um, pollutant to that that contains lots of nutrients like uh, wastewater from injection wells from cesspools or from fertilizer and that groundwater flows into the ocean which again historically has very low nitrogen it can really uh, disturb the ecosystem these uh, habitats here in the in the islands um, the near shore environment has kind of um, you know uh, was created was, um, with very low nutrients. So the plants are used to a very low nutrient environment. So any addition to that can really stimulate growth and kind of throw off the natural balance of life and create uh, algal blooms and uh, and other kind of coral diseases and things which I'll talk about in a moment. So again, as, um, as this groundwater's flowing into the ocean, it brings with it a lot of nitrogen and algae love nitrogen. It's like fertilizing the reef when you do this. And so uh, we've seen in many places in the state over time where um, you add a lot of nitrogen to the ocean and you get these massive blooms of opportunistic algae. These are algae that grow faster and can tolerate more extremes in the environment than, than other species. And what that does is it, it leads to these kind of, pushes out the native species. And when you push out native species, um, surprisingly enough, the other native species don't hang out very long. If you change the dinner plate for the native fish, they're not gonna be there to eat dinner anymore. They're gonna go somewhere else. So you change the algae in the location, you change the uh, the fish that you can find there because they're no longer have anything to eat. And uh, this also can shift microbial communities, which we're learning more about recently and how that impacts reef health. Um, corals don't like to settle in uh, environments that don't have the right kind of microbial community. and Also, a nutrient addition has been um, related to coral disease, and we've seen this in in many locations around the state. So here's a a couple images, some of which I've taken from algal blooms um, on Maui in the past. We we have uh, these large oval blooms, that's the green uh, seaweed that kind of shows up at beaches in large amounts. We have the red seaweed shown here, which is a hypnea, which um, I've seen to be, you know, feet thick in places at low tide. And it's bad on the beach. It smells bad. There's, there's flies there. You know, you don't want to sunbathe there. You don't want to go in the water. Uh, If you've ever been in the ocean where, where you kind of have to wade through a whole bunch of seaweed before you get out to where it's, you know, decent to swim, it's, it's not a pleasant experience and uh, it's not pleasant for the reef either. Again, this, these, um, these species come in, they attach to rocks, they grow over corals, the, they physically abrade corals and other species living there and it really creates a, an environment that becomes more like a you know a cornfield, a monocrop, if you will, than, uh, than a diverse reef with lots of pukas for other organisms to hide in and, and live. And so it, we can use these you know, invasive species to our advantage in the fact that we can actually use the tissues of the seaweeds to detect sewage, and this is something that I've uh, kind of spent a lot of time doing, where we're looking at the uh, what's called the delta 15n value of, of the nitrogen in that seaweed tissue. And this is basically a ratio of nitrogen isotopes. We got a little science here, but bear with me. It's a ratio of nitrogen isotopes in the tissue. When you have a high value, it's indicative that the nitrogen in that tissue came from um, a denitrifying process that is typical of wastewater processes. So if you have a high value, and, uh, and you know that there's wastewater sources nearby, it's a very good indication that you're having nitrogen in that seaweed and in the water that seaweed's growing in uh, from those wastewater sources. And so we've done this around the island of Oahu where we've um, uh, gathered seaweed at different places where there's high densities of cesspools and injection wells, and nearly uh, every time we're finding that nitrogen, evidence of that wastewater nitrogen in the tissues. And so we've done this um, uh, uh, with Act 132 that passed recently here in Hawaii in the state legislature. We, uh, there was a fund set aside to do a statewide survey of wastewater approach for major uh, islands with four research groups testing seaweed and water uh, around the state. And so I can share some of those results with you today Uh, These are preliminary results, we're still crunching numbers, Uh, we're still doing the last of our modeling here, but this is our latest uh, kind of preliminary results showing the um, statewide modeled statewide coastal wastewater nitrogen flux, and that's shown um, as these kind of colored bands around the islands. And I'm also showing in with the blue stars, the different locations where we've sampled, seaweed and uh, water. And so we had about a third of our seaweed samples show evidence of, of wastewater nitrogen so far. And I can show you some um, kind of a closer view of what we're doing from a site-to-site basis on Maui. This was uh, in a, a white paper by Michael Mezicapo where Wailea, uh, our experimental site, upgraded there is a really high density of cesspools. We're finding elevated delta 15 in these algae with an average of 6.9 and elevated nitrogen in those tissues. That's just percent nitrogen in those algal tissues compared to a nearby control site um, in uh, Kihei, in South Kihei, uh, where we have much lower values of both of those. So um, that's it for today on, on uh, the deep science here with uh, wastewater nitrogen, you can uh, feel free to contact me if you have any um, other questions or save them for the end of the webinar.
5: Thank you very much. Yeah, great job um, to all my co-presenters and thank you, Elizabeth, for putting this on. Um, I'm gonna be talking and upgrade these terrible cesspools that we just about. Um, When we talk about individual wastewater systems, it's important that we distinguish between treatment and disposal. And uh, while the treatment um, has units such as septic tanks or natural systems like constructed wetlands, when we look at disposal systems, we are talking about leach fields seepage pits, or even evapotranspiration systems. And there are even some systems that combine both. There are mostly disposal systems, nitrogen-removing biofilters, or um, other alternative leach field technologies. But both of these require septic tanks for pre-treatment. Um, um, the treatment units here are septic tanks, and Septic tanks and ATUs are used depend on, on site considerations such as what, um, how close we are to the ocean, and then we have legislative rules that uh, dictate what we're allowed to use and whatnot. There are financial restraints because ATUs are up to five times as expensive as septic tanks, just the material cost alone. And then we also have environmental goals. If a site has um, Goals to be very environmentally friendly that would also dictate what type of treatment unit we would use. Here is an example of what a septic tank can look like. This is a two-compartment septic tank. There are also just one-compartment septic tanks. And you can see the wastewater from the house comes in on the left in the inlet, and the heavier particles settle on the ground. There's hardly any biological activity happening there. Um, but the effluent that has settled out via gravity all of the heavier particles moves on to the right and eventually flows out um, out of the outlet via gravity so this is what we call a passive system because no electricity is needed and on the top you see the access risers that are used for maintenance and you can open them for pumping which you need to do every couple of years or so as a comparison here we have an aerobic treatment unit um, there are some aerobic treatment units that have their own little compartments that act as septic tanks. This one here does not. So you, this one would need a, a septic tank sort of upstream of this. But um, the septic effluent comes in to this tank and you have what the, distinguishes this is the air pump uh, powered by electricity, which creates dissolved oxygen in, in small air bubbles that the bacteria that live in our guts and therefore live in our wastewater can feed upon and stay alive and um, these aerobic bacteria are great at breaking down the um, the organics that are in the wastewater and then also sink to the ground and then the clean or comparatively clean wastewater exits on the right at the outlet side and goes to uh, to the disposal system. Also this one also needs to be Pumped out every couple of years, the sludge that settles at the at the ground. That's why it also has an access riser. Here we can see the constructed wetland, which is a nature-based, more sophisticated system that can achieve as good, if not even better, effluent values that any aerobic treatment unit can. And so it can even be certified by the National Sanitation Foundation standard 245 which um, uh, denotes not only BOD and um, suspended solid reduction, but even nitrogen removals of over 50%. And uh, I can say that this is right now on the up and coming. And unfortunately there are none that have been implemented as individual wastewater systems on the residential scale yet, but they're very much on the way and we're hoping to have many in the ground by 2021. And um, this is also, passive, so no electricity needed, everything is, um, all the nutrients are reduced via nature, plants, and bacteria. Now after we've covered all the treatment or some of the most common treatment units, we can move on to the disposal. So now our cleaned or relatively clean wastewater has to be gotten rid of somehow, and one of this options, the most common option, is a leach field, and you can see here a photo. This leach field is of the older variety, uh, perforated pipes, so all these wet pipes you can see there have holes in the ground that the wastewater can drip out of and disperse through the ground, and actually the, the soil that's beneath this gravel that you can see there is what does most of the treatment, because the soil acts as a filter, and before it can before the wastewater can reach any level of groundwater the soil has filtered it successfully and cleaned it appropriately and what's most important about these leach fields is that they are properly sized and in coarse sand that you can imagine has a lot of pore size the water can just hydro- hydrologically disperse a lot quicker and, and get away a lot quicker than if we are dealing with the heavy clay that has you know tiny particles and there's not a lot of pore space so according to the Department of Health, which is the governing agency for these individual wastewater systems, according to their rules, a coarse sand requires approximately 70 square feet of leach area per bedroom and heavy clay can almost up to five times as much. So um, it's really important that these are properly sized and large enough to deal with all the water, otherwise you'll have a backed up toilet a couple of years down the line. And the maximum slope that we can design these for as eight percent slope because otherwise you cannot guarantee an even distribution of the wastewater across this leach field, and um, these can cost about five dollars per square foot um, for material only, and then labor cost in Hawaii it's relatively high, so this is unfortunately not a cheap system. An additional version of a disposal system can be a seepage pit. These are essentially just converted cesspool. So you put a septic tank between the house and the cesspool and you call it a seepage pit and it receives treated wastewater Um, and uh, these are used sort of as a last resort option because we don't want to use groundwater because oftentimes they're many dozens of feet deep and um, we want to use we want to use leach fields as often as we can. And whenever we just don't have enough space for them, or if the slope of the property is too high, or there are other reasons, then we resort to using these seepage bits. But like I said, they're they're a last resort. And another disposal method I wanted to talk about is evapotranspiration. You sometimes hear people talk about how it's zero discharge, meaning that ideally, No wastewater that is um, disposed of via this method reaches the groundwater. It all gets uptaken by a combination of evaporation. So just the ground and the sun working together to evaporate the wastewater and transpiration. So that's the component of the plants. Basically, the plant sweats out, um, takes up the water in the roots and sweats it out, which is a normal thing that plants do. And uh, the evapotranspiration systems are designed By means of low pressure drip irrigation lines. So these are tubes that are between six and 10 inches below grade and um, essentially your run of the mill irrigation lines, except you have wastewater in them other than clean water. And the downside of these systems is that lots of space is needed because your only mechanism of getting rid of water is evapotranspiration. And uh, rain, any rain that comes down onto your property will reduce the capacity. So these are only usable and feasible really in dry areas such as the north shore of Oahu or um, the west side. You won't see these on the windward side. And these are also sort of a last resort because of the area that they need and uh, you can't really plant anything other than grass on top of them because any other roots will destroy these uh, tubes and um, yeah these are used most of the time when the Department of Health requires it and uh, not any other time just because of these downsides. And um, the last technology is one of these combination systems that I wanted to touch on. You can see in the picture it looks a little bit like a beach field except it has a layer of sand and a layer of sand wood chip mixture below it and what that, what those layers do is the sand layer acts as a nitrifying layer and the sand wood chip mixture layer acts as a denitrifying layer. So that means we can in a passive system without the use of electricity remove nitrogen in a large amount. And that is fantastic because all these moving parts that you would have in an aerobic treatment unit are not here. There's nothing that can break all that easily. And this system that Colleen had a little bit touched on before uh, comes from the state of New York and specifically Stony Brook University that put forth this goal of 10-10-30, which means they want to achieve an effluent under 10 milligrams per liter in total nitrogen for less than $10,000 and the system to last 30 years. And you can imagine the hardest part, especially in Hawaii, is this cost of less than $10,000 because even just the installation of a septic tank uh, can sometimes um, topple that goal and we haven't even touched on the leach field. But that is something we're working on. We're looking at financing options at, uh, when I say we, we, I mean Vi, and um, we're very optimistic that we can make this and maybe get closer to that magic number of $10,000.
3: Thank you very much.
0: I thank you guys so much. Those were great presentations and so informative. Um, Does anyone have any questions?
6: Yeah, I was wondering if there are any beaches that have, like, they're that are main kind of like don't go to for high bacteria. Like, do we know any ones that are like consistently high bacteria every time you test them around the island? Dan, you want to take that question? You're on mute. Sorry.
4: We're talking about Oahu. Is that right? Yeah, Oahu. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely two particular places that I uh, almost every time find very high bacterial counts uh, over the DOH threshold of 130. And that's um, our our site at Kahaluu. That's the the boat ramp here on the hygienic store there, uh, which is widely used by the public. And yet, um, I mean, you see people fishing up, I would probably stay out of there. There's, you know, DOH is aware of the issue. Uh, there's been a lot of efforts trying to figure out what's going on there. The other spot is um, a surf break called, called Chocolates, and it's appropriately named Chocolates uh, <laughs> because it's usually always brown. Um, and and uh, that's uh, right where the kind of the bridge at Haleva is adjacent to the harbor. It spills out there. Um, at the beach park and uh, another kind of popular area for recreation uh, right behind surf and sea. Um, so that's another spot that we, you know, every, we rarely get a uh, value that is, um, you know, giving us a clean signal. So those are two spots that that are definitely on my radar. Um, but if you're interested, go to our Blue water task force for results and click on um, sites of places that you're interested in and you can actually uh, see graphs of all of our data pop up and there's threshold value lines and it's uh, our new results website is super user friendly to see data uh, at kind of uh, historical data. So that's uh, where I would point you if you want
3: more information.
6: That's great. Up After you've tested it to say like high bacteria.
3: Um, that's a good question. We have been working
4: with the state to um, kind of figure out best signage for many years now, it's kind of um, I'll, let, I'll I'll kind of punt that one to Stu. He's been kind of more involved uh, with those discussions than I have. Yeah,
1: thanks, Dan. Um, the yeah, as Dan mentioned, we were meeting with the uh, the state for about two years, really trying to encourage them to post um, whenever they found levels that exceeded and. We've been successful um, on Kauai in particular, thanks to the Kauai chapter. They really, really pushed hard for that. Um, And they are doing more signage, but you can also sign up for DOH's notification system um, and they will send out, um, you can kind of choose the areas you want to be notified about um, and we'll try to find that and post that as well. And you can sign up and they'll send you notifications when it exceeds the limit. The final ad that kind of ties water quality to legislation and I think is really important is that Hawaii is one of the only states in the country that when they have what's called a brown water advisory, when it's raining, they'll issue a brown water advisory and then they'll stop testing. Mm. And their logic in that is, oh, well everybody knows it's dirty and they shouldn't go in. And we're, our response is always, no, people don't know that for sure because we always see people surfing and swimming afterwards and but then they later on will brag and say oh well, this beach only had two hits where it exceeded the limit every year and we're like but but you didn't test when it was dirty so there's this kind of you know policy that they have test when it's clean don't test when it's dirty and you know they're arguing you know it's a problem but we're just saying containing obviously and endangers your people we don't care if you do that but if it's just Having rained and you call it a plan water advisor you still need to go and test and show the results it's only accurate
6: yeah that makes sense um, I was only asking because I was at Malay Beach Park the other day and I saw that there was a sign taped there so I wasn't know- I wasn't sure if that was you guys but it was basically a sign right by the beach entrance that said high pollution like hyperbacteria don't go in so I wasn't sure if that was Surfrider or somebody else
1: that actually was the state um, and um, yeah that's a you know, we hadn't had a rain in a long time. And so uh, whenever you have those first flushes, a rain after a long time, I think that's the most important thing to tell people. Don't, don't go out in the water within a minimum of 24 hours, better 48 hours, because you will definitely get elevated spikes because it's just accumulated pet waste, oils, chemicals, fertilizers, you know, everything you can imagine that goes out during that first flush. Um, and so yeah, the state uh, put that up, and they can usually it only it takes 24 hours, so it's usually saying you shouldn't have swum or gone in the water yesterday. But it, it'll
4: last for. Oh yeah,
6: that makes sense. Okay, thank you so much.
4: Um, yeah, and I, just, I just want to add that we saw that uh, with our blue water task force here on Oahu um, two weeks ago when we did our sampling event. We. We were basically 24 hours after one of those kind of first flushes, where it had been dry for nearly two months here on the island, and uh, there was a rain event uh, that lasted. um, I think it was Saturday, Saturday night, or uh, Friday night into Saturday, and then on Sunday we tested, and nearly uh, three quarters of our sites uh, came in over the 130 threshold. So we were able to detect that at sites that uh, were had high bacteria after this flush event
6: got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. uh, Thanks. Oh, actually, sorry. I do have one more question. Were there any other states that you guys have some like good learnings from that have like figured out how to kind of figure out the cesspool situation and how they like any insights and learnings from specific states that have done, you know, really good on this?
2: I think, Stuart, you might be able to speak to that more. I'm, I know specifically what went on in Long Island just because I was locally working on water quality there, but I don't know if, Stu, you have any other good examples.
1: I th- I think you probably have more in-depth, um, you know, for Long Island because it is similar to Hawaii in some ways, and it's an island and has a high n- number of cesspools, big systems. Um, yeah, so... I'm gonna, I'm gonna punt that one back to you.
6: Yeah. No, no. Your 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 um presentation was super clear. So I wasn't sure if there was any other like, you know, states like California or you know, tinier cities within within California that might know more stuff. But yeah, that's all super helpful. Thank you. Well, thanks.
2: Yeah, I'll just say that it's it's kind of a newer problem. Like within the past couple of years, the issue has really, really risen to the surface, especially with sea level rise, because a lot of these areas that are being impacted by wastewater from our On-site systems are, you know, the the water is rising, and you know, in Long Island, it's literally just sand, so you'll have (laughs) septic systems going in and out with the tide. Um, So a lot of a lot of these issues have really risen in the past couple of years. So I think like Hawaii and Long Island are some of the first that are actually dealing with it. Um, But yeah, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes out for other examples because it would be good to kind of have that in our pocket too.
1: There was. I'll just mention two kind of quick success stories. In the Keys, they noticed um, a lot of coral reef decline um, and they realized it was, you know, all of these cesspools and septic systems just weren't doing any treatment. And it was the sediment and the waste and everything was going out and, and really harming the reefs. So they put in low pressure sewer systems and they saw recovery in a a fairly quick amount of time. And then in Kaneohe Bay, they've seen the same thing here on Oahu, um, where they closed up a lot of leaky pipes and replaced them. They, um, you know, rerouted things that had some direct outfalls into the bay. And they were getting really bad, you know, kind of uh, eutrophication again with the low oxygen, uh, more algal blooms, declining coral reef cover, and you know, within 10 or so years after fixing those problems, they really saw a resurgence um, in the resilience of the reef, greater fish populations, and so that was really encouraging to know that we can fix this problem and it can have an effect that we can see in our lifetimes.
6: Yeah, That's awesome, thanks for letting me know. I'll, I'll look into it. Awesome.
3: Um, this is Arlene. I have a quick question. What about toilet technology? Um, as far as, you know, sanitizing everything before it even gets into this the sewage system or septic system?
5: Wow, ah, Stuart, do you want me to take this one? Yeah, you want to jump on that? Absolutely. So thank you for a question. We have actually been privileged and uh, lucky to put the very first incinerating toilet in the Western United States into the ground very recently, um, called by a brand called Cinderella from Norway. And this is a toilet that turns human waste into pathogen free ash by means of direct incineration within the toilet itself. it's, I mean, obviously it's it's safe. It's not while you're sitting on it, but uh, <laughs> it's right after. And um, it's uh, on Moko Oloi, so other people know it as Coconut Island in Kanyohe Bay. And we're about to plaster the internet with news articles about it. I think the folks at HIMB are writing an article, Stuart writing an article, and social media is about to be blasted. So make, um, make yourself... Um, open to learn a lot about it very soon but we're very proud and we're trying to put more of these toilets uh, to farms on this island and possibly other NGOs so that is one way to reduce toilet effluent right at the source and uh, we're open for anything else if you have a lead we're always glad to learn about new technologies.
3: Thank you. I I thought that the Japanese had a UV light toilet years ago, but I haven't heard it much about it yet since then.
5: Yeah, if you could try to brainstorm what that was and send it our way, that would be fantastic.
3: Okay.
1: And Arlene, Yoko's already also, they put in some systems where they use UV light at the very end um, sometimes to disinfect. Um, So, you know, if you might have an ATU that's kind of a final effect that they use this UV light to kill the remaining pathogens.
5: Yeah, good point.
0: Great, any other questions? Got a few minutes left.
1: Come on, peeps, you gotta have questions.
0: I
3: know not everyone at once. Well, I, I guess I have another question. Um, yeah. There, you know, there's been a lot of talk right now, of course, about sea level change and the climate um, the climate initiative that we have here on Hawaii. And what I what, what seems to me to be the case is we have this this committee, and they there's is there an overview? I mean, how is all this related to each other? so that it becomes a one big solving community. It, it, it just seems fragmented right now, I guess.
5: Um, I can assure you and uh, maybe make you feel a little bit more optimistic about it. There's a very talented uh, UHC Grant College outreach specialist, her name is Shelley Hable, and she is very good at um, not only researching sea level rise, but putting that research to work and um, spreading the word about how it will affect the wastewater and water um, business and infrastructure in Hawaii. And so once um, once we figure out a, the perfect way to collaborate with her, there's already lots of collaborations going on. Um, you will hear the... Um, connections between those two topics. So thank you very much for bringing that up. It's certainly a big problem because the more that uh, sea level rises, the more groundwater rises, and the more groundwater pollution takes place. And so it's important, especially in those near shore areas, that these cesspools get upgraded to systems that are resilient against sea level rise, ideally by making the effluent so clean that we can uh, safely dispose it into the water. Thank you.
0: We've got a question in the chat as well from Zach. Are the algae scrubbing the nitrogen?
4: I guess I'll take that one because uh, I like algae. <laughs> but um, are they scrubbing the nitrogen uh, on the reef? Yeah, you know, on some level they are, and that's why that's why they're so successful. That's why they become potentially a problem. Um, because they they do have the ability to rapidly take up and store nitrogen in their tissues, and so yes, in in, the, in a sense they are uh, reducing the nitrogen load on the reef, but in the process they be, in themselves become the problem. And so uh, a while back I I you know um, came up with this kind of design for a a wastewater plant that actually used algae to scrub nitrogen and then the algae were um, uh, fermented into methane for energy it was this kind of package plan idea that didn't go anywhere but my computer but uh, it's an interesting concept that they yeah they have that ability and um, and we could you know utilize that in the future in some sort of um, you know innovative wetland kind of technology of sorts that uh, Yoko was was talking about and I want to leave you with with this one um, saying that kind of has always stuck with me through all these kind of wastewater conferences and stuff and that there there's there's no waste water there's just water that's wasted
7: hmm i like it
1: Brilliant. another wise saying is never trust a cesspool because they're full of crap <laughs>
0: another chat question. What's the cost of putting in these new systems? Which one is the best output for the least money or effort?
5: Ooh, that's a great question. I would say, I can definitely tell you the worst quote unquote one, the worst um, one that you can go with the minimum upgrade, essentially the smallest leap, clearing the hurdle by just a fraction of an inch is a septic system. So whenever you hear septic systems are enough, that is not the answer. Um, the answer itself is very site-specific, but I would say in a lot of cases, um, if you can go with an aerobic treatment unit, that that is already a big leap over what a septic system can do. However, these are not the cheapest. So the system that I mentioned in the very end, the one that's it's a septic tank, and then it has this nitrogen-reducing biofilter. That might be the solution for a lot of these, you know, many tens of thousands of cesspools in this state, if we can get this on the ground, because it's passive, so it's, it's cheaper. doesn't require so much maintenance. Wood chips and sand, we have plenty over here, if, if you look around. And um, leach fields are not the... It's not rocket science, so anybody with a license can install them. So I think that might be that might be the one that we end up going with for a lot of these because it's sort of the best of all worlds.
1: Uh, One other thing that I just might mention, because all of you guys are, you know, very informed and, um, and can help get the message out. I think a lot of people think that, oh, if I don't have a cesspool, it's not my problem. And I, what we really need, the message we need to get across to people is that cesspools are all our problems. Because if it affects our drinking water, our groundwater, our surface waters, uh, then it affects all of us. And so it is a collective issue. And so we just need to you know, spread the word and educate people about it you know, so that we get their buy-in when they realize, oh, it's time to go from a cesspool... To upgrade, people are like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. And it's just like, well, this is for a public good, for our general health and the health of our water.
0: There's another question, a follow-up question in the chat, but um, maybe some places are connecting to sewer is the best option.
5: Yeah, Um, great point, and uh, sorry for not mentioning that at all. the fact that I didn't mention it at all sort of shows a little bit of the disappointment that uh, many of us feel in the lack of municipal sewer availability um, on this island and especially on the neighbor islands. So when we talk about these individual wastewater systems, these you know, decentralized systems, they're always only seen as a temporary solution. So as soon as sewer becomes available in any area, it would be ideal for everybody no matter if they're on a cesspool or in an individual wastewater system to connect to it. All cesspools are eventually forced to connect to it. If you have an individual wastewater system, you're not forced because you already did upgrade, but, um, definitely if sewer becomes available in an area, um, connecting to it is a great, great choice because these centralized wastewater treatment plants do a great job in cleaning up the wastewater, some more than others, but, um, yeah, I would say connecting to the sewer wherever possible is recommended because that's eventually the final solution.
0: So wait, Sam has his hand raised and then we have another question in the chat and then we'll probably wrap it up.
7: Hey everybody. Um, yeah, I kind of, my name is Sam. I'm a, uh, engineer septic systems over on the North shore of Kauai. Um, we also do work in, uh, out in Suffolk County in New York too. So it's interesting to hear from Colleen. But um, I think that the big difference here and why we're kind of in the dark ages here is um, is the cesspools and, you know, upgrading to even a, a gravity-fed septic system is such a big jump for everybody, where in other parts of, you know, the United States, like, like out on Long Island, is they're already going from a septic system to a IA system or an aerobic system. So um, we're just, we're in such a need uh, for this year. And like Stuart was saying, with the amount of cesspools that we're actually still on here. So um, I think it's getting educating everybody. If someone's mowing, my next door neighbor's mowing here. <laughs> yeah. um, but educating everybody on, um, on really the need of that is, is great. And so thanks for your guys' hard work on this.
1: Thanks, Sam.
0: And Sam. Yeah, so I saw Stuart, you started answering the question, but um, I'll just repeat it again. How much do the incineration toilets cost, and will the state offer incentives to convert?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Right now, there are about 5,000 with shipping and supplies, and basically, you can put it wherever you would put a normal toilet. It's a waterless toilet, so you could just cut off the plumbing. Or if you had a house where you just didn't have the infrastructure and you couldn't do the plumbing, and that's, you know, a lot of money just to put that. You could put it in and put it in its own little water closet, um, and uh, but we're also looking at you know as them as replacements for you know things in teeny homes or in disaster zones or on farms, as Yoko was saying, so that you know they're much cheaper and cleaner than porta potties because you know those might be $150 a month the rent, but sometimes they're as much as $100 a week to pump. And as everyone knows, they're, they're not the most pleasant experiences. Um, and these toys are just very clean and efficient. And, um, and in Europe, they're using them because of COVID. Um, they're 100% pathogen free. And we know that the coronavirus can travel through wastewater and is actually used as an indicator to trace how many people might be infected in the area. So there are also a lot of sanitary reasons why they're important to have.
0: Okay, thanks, everyone. Um, it's just over six o'clock, so we'll wrap it up. I really appreciate you all being here and a great discussion that we've had. Good questions. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you. you, guys, Thank
1: you. Thanks for joining.
2: Thanks, guys. Good stuff.
7: Mahalo.